If uh, you are new around here, we just want to extend a special welcome to you. My name is Tim. I have the privilege of pastoring here at Life Community. And before we dive into our topic, we'll just uh, give you a heads up. We're hopefully, Lord willing, we're within a couple weeks of wrapping up the construction around here. And so we're hoping either next weekend or the following weekend, we're going to be able to open the new restrooms. Can I hear a woohoo on that? Yeah. And we're super excited to open our new kids' wing and get the kids in there. We're expanding. We've added a bunch of classrooms back here, and uh, that is awesome to see. And so we're excited about reaching the next generation. That is one of our primary focuses here at Life Community. And so uh, we're going to dive in. If you are joining us for the first time or for the first time in a while, we are in a, a short series, actually about a five-week series. We're wrapping it up today. It's called Mirage, and we've been looking at some spiritual ideas that wind up hurting people, some common things that you hear thrown around and are sort of urban legends, um, and they wind up hurting people. And so we looked at a few of those uh, things as we got going. Last week, we talked about forgiveness and how forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. And we really dove into forgiveness. But today, we're going to talk about something a little bit different to to close out this series. And if you are new around here, we often teach verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. This fall, we're diving into some more topical things. What we're going to look at today is a verse that is perhaps the, one of the most quoted verses of the Bible in our culture. And I guarantee you, somebody's probably said it to you, or you've said it to somebody else, probably. And it's, it's a verse that Jesus spoke. It's actually from the Sermon on the Mount, one of his, uh, his most famous sermon, probably, that we see in scriptures. And that is in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And that, that little verse goes like this. Do not judge. Anybody heard that before? Yeah. Anybody said that to anybody before? Don't judge me, bro, right? Yeah, you've said that, a few of you, right? Anybody had somebody say that to you? Yeah, it's, it's a really common thing. And so when Jesus said this, this verse, do not judge, what, what does this verse mean? What does it mean? Does he mean that we can't call something someone else does wrong? Because that's sure how it gets thrown around a lot. Um, I was, a number of years ago, I was doing missionary work. I was in Zimbabwe. Uh, I'd just taken a bus from South Africa up to Zimbabwe and uh, got off the bus, and these guys surrounded me, and offered to exchange my money at a great rate, right? And so <laughs> and so I said, I said, okay, sounds great, right? And so we kind of like huddle up here, and the exchange rate was like 38 to 1. And so I give them the, about the equivalent, I pull up my money belt, give them about the equivalent of $60 U.S., and count it out. And then they proceed, this guy proceeds to count all these bills out in front of me, $100 bills because of the exchange rate, you know, hundreds, and wads them up and puts a rubber band around them and hands me the wad. Well, I walk away, and then I take the rubber band off a little bit later and open the wad, and instead of the $100 bills that he'd counted in front of me, there were a bunch of, like, fives in there little sleight of hand action, right? And I'm like, that is so wrong. I'm here to help your your people. And I'm sure they were thinking, you did help our people. Thank you very much. (laughs) But that was so wrong. Can we all admit that is so wrong? And so when Jesus is, is talking about do not judge, does he mean 
you can't call something that is obviously so wrong, so wrong. I don't think that's really at the, the heart of it, right? Um, how about maybe he's saying Christians can't be magistrates, you know, judges, actual judges. I don't think that's the heart of what he's saying anyway, either, is it? In fact, can you imagine living in a world with no justice system, where there's no justice system at all? It would be a pretty lousy place to live. You certainly wouldn't want to bring your kids up in that town, would you? And so here's the thing, and and whenever you read scripture, this is a common principle you need to remember. It's called context, right? It's called context. And the problem is I've actually got this up here wrong for you today because do not judge doesn't have a period after it, does it? It has a comma in the Bible. And it's set in the midst of a context. And understanding that context is vital if you want to understand this little phrase. Because when you take this phrase out of context, here's why this phrase can be a spiritual idea, common like an urban legend, things that get thrown around that you hear all over the culture, but it doesn't really mean what you think it means. And when you, it's kind of a half truth when you understand it the way you do, because when it gets used the way it gets used all the time in our culture, what it really ends up meaning is you can't ever correct somebody. How many of you have ever met a, a child who was never disciplined growing up? Yeah, it's not a pretty picture, is it? And see, when do not judge turns into you can never point out or correct somebody else's behavior, that winds up being a very um, damaging and hurtful idea. It ends up hurting people because ultimately that's not in their best interest, is it? And if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that one day you'll, you'll stand in front of your maker, it's definitely not in their best interest, is it? And so today what we're going to talk about is five keys to living out this teaching of Jesus. And to get there, I just want to set this um, passage in the context a little bit better. There is not, like I said, there's not a period at the end of this verse. There's the comment. Here's how this section goes. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay, so Jesus is talking about something a little bit different here, isn't he? He's talking about, actually, when you go look at the whole passage, he's talking about hypocrisy. He goes on to say, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? And I've, I've done this before. Whenever I come to this passage in scripture, I, I like to illustrate it. And I forgot to bring a plank, um, but I have a stool. And so I always pick on somebody in the front row here um, to illustrate how... So Jesus is a master teacher. He's, he's a rabbi. Rabbis are known for their sense of humor, right? And so I think, you know, you read this often at dry, but you got to read the drama when you read Scripture because there's so much drama in Scripture. And so I think Jesus is doing this, and it's really funny, actually. I think people are laughing just at this word picture. Maybe there's a, a plank over there. You know, Jesus was a carpenter. I don't know. But the way I see it, he wants to illustrate how ridiculous when you have some big major deal in your life to be pointing out somebody else's minor flaws, 
How, how, how ridiculous that is, right? And it's like this. It's like, hey, Jeff, um, uh, can I, you got something in your eye there? So, right there. Can I, can I just get close to you and, and pull that out for you here? He's like, get away from me, you freak, right? Why? Because it's ridiculous, and that's the point Jesus is making. See, the big point around the scripture is about hypocritical judging. He's always getting on the Pharisees about judging. And what are they judging? Well, they, on the outside, he says, they look great, but their hearts are, are, are so far away from God. And they've neglected the weightier things he talks about, like mercy and compassion, the big deal things in the law of God, in place of all the little trivial ceremonial washings and all the things that they've made a big deal. And so set in context, this is really what Jesus is getting to when he talks about judging. He goes on, he says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, right? And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. If I'm going to go and try to take the speck out of Jeff's eye, I don't want a giant plank or stool sticking out of my eye. I'm not going to be able to see. I'm not going to be able to help him, right? And that's the point that Jesus is making here. And the first thing you got to know about before we kind of get to the five things is that do not judge. When Jesus says do not judge, what he does not mean, when you put together the whole scripture on this, what he does not mean is refusing to call sin, sin. He does not mean that. And see, here's what this really, this phrase, do not judge, when it gets thrown around, it, what it's come to mean in our culture, hey, don't judge me, bro. It, what it's come to mean is you can't say that anything anybody else does, unless it's, you know, really the stuff that everybody in the culture, you know, would say is wrong or evil, you know, murder and all that kind of stuff. Unless it's those universally accepted things, you can't point to somebody else's life and, and say anything is wrong. That's how it's come to, that's what it's come to mean. But see, the problem is Jesus frequently talks about sin and addresses sin in people's lives. In fact, one of his most famous times, um, they drag this, this woman before him who gets caught in the act of adultery. Coincidentally, no dude. Um, that's not, doesn't sound very fair to me, right? That's the culture they lived in. But here's the, guy, here's the, the lady and all these religious leaders say, hey, the law says stoner. Are you going to stoner? And they're trying to trick Jesus. And Jesus crouches down and starts scribbling something in the sand. Scholars think he's writing the sins of the Pharisees that are surrounding him. And Jesus looks up. And all of a sudden, one by one, they start peeling off from the back, you know. And before you know it, it's just him and this lady. And he looks at her and says, hey, where are all those that would condemn you? She says, they're gone, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't stop there. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. The lifestyle you're in, the behavior you're in is destructive both to you and to those around you. It is sinful. Go leave your life of sin. So do not judge doesn't mean not calling sin, sin. And see, here's where we've kind of gotten into a, a, a really weird place in our culture with this. Because this word that gets thrown around all the time, tolerance, now, tolerance is a good thing, but here's, here's what tolerance used to mean in our culture. In fact, the dictionary defines 
tolerance, Merriam-Webster defines it as this, sympathy or indulgence for beliefs or practices differing from or conflicting with one's own. So to tolerate something, it automatically means that you probably disagree with them. If you, if you don't disagree, you, there's nothing to tolerate, right? You just agree. So it's respecting another person while in the meantime, basically saying, I, you have the right to be wrong. We can agree to disagree in this and still respect each other. And that's a great trait, especially living in a free country where people are free to choose who they worship and all those things. I wouldn't want it any other way, right? But here's what, here's what that meant in the past. It meant allowing people to behave or the freedom to believe differently, but still having the freedom to evaluate and critique ideas in public discourse, that ideas and people were separate things that, that you didn't have to attack the person to attack the idea, right? And today, here's what really this idea of tolerance means. And you look at the public discourse, and this really explains a lot of what you see, the back and forth on, on uh, cable news and stuff. It means to accept or approve different opinions or ways of living, refusing to judge viewpoints or opinions as being right or wrong. Did you catch that? In our culture, you can't even go there unless, like I said, it's something universally accepted. You can't even go there and, and talk about something being right or wrong. We've lost the, the civil dialogue for that of actually debating ideas and, and, and the consequences of ideas. Instead, it always turns to personal attack, doesn't it? You can't watch the news for you know, 10, 15 minutes without catching that. How quickly a debate of ideas turns into a personal character attack against the people. And, and here's really why this has occurred, is because the dominant, the dominant um, educational framework, the dominant worldview in our culture is really no longer the worldview of Scripture, is it? A Judeo-Christian worldview. It is now a naturalistic worldview. And a worldview is a way of looking at the world, like a set of lenses through which you look at the world, Right? And what that means is if, if, if everything is a result of natural selection and random chance processes, that includes ethics. And so ethics are no longer, morality is no longer an absolute, something that God has put in place in our culture. Now ethics and morality are something that have just evolved and it's just groupthink, whatever culture says or believes is the best thing for the community must be what's best. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the problem with that is that Scripture is very clear that truth originates in God, in the creator of everything. That that is our anchor point, and that is what we reference our lives around. That is the foundation for morality and for everything we hold as true. And we believe it's the, the word of God is revealed in the Scripture. That's where we place our anchor point, right? And so judging doesn't mean not calling sin, sin. And I think that's a very important first thing. And so Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, no, this is hypocritical judging. He says, first, you need to take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So now that we've kind of had a little conversation on one of the primary things that do not judge doesn't mean, I want to talk about five ways that I think this applies in our lives. Because how many of you have ever met some very judgmental Christians? Yeah. 
Can I just speak to, if, there, if there's anyone in the room that you're a judgmental Christian, um, stop it. You're not helping our case. You're not drawing people to Jesus. And see, for a lot of Christians today, um, as we've said before, there's a little Pharisee in you and in me, right? And it's very easy to drift into that. And so here, five keys to living out Jesus' command not to judge. The first one is this. When you feel those judgmental feelings coming up towards other people based on behavior, opinions, beliefs, it's to use your judgmental feelings as a mirror. Use your judgmental feelings as a mirror. What do I mean by that? What I mean is asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what is it inside of me that is equivalent of what he or she is being or doing in this situation that's driving me crazy? Is there something, maybe it's a completely different area of life, but is, is there something as obnoxious in my life in another area as this thing that drives me crazy in their life? And if so, ask him to begin dealing with it in your heart. See, what Jesus is saying in that verse we just looked at is deal with your own stuff first. Before you want to go picking out the flaws and the faults in other people's lives, you better start dealing with your own stuff. And this is one of the classic reasons why, why people who follow Jesus get such a bad name in culture as a whole. is because we're notoriously um, good at picking out other people's flaws and notoriously bad at dealing with our own stuff first. Doesn't mean you can't recognize sin. See, see that's what you got to keep separate. It doesn't mean you can't look at a situation and go, well, that's wrong, right? But what it means is before you start getting all loud and up in somebody's face, you better make sure. Well, you don't, shouldn't, we'll talk about that in a minute. But <laughs> before you think, I'm, I'm going to go and deal with this person's speck and deal and rip it out of their life and get all in their case. I got this glaring thing over here. Maybe it's a glaring thing that only you know about. See, Jesus is, over and over again, Jesus talks about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And here's the good news behind this. If somebody ever tells you, you know, I don't want to follow Jesus because there's so many hypocrites in the church, you just need to go, yeah, you're right, there are. See, that was never... the. The fact that we have stuff to deal with, yes, that is so true. That's why Jesus came. That's what the gospel's about. He came to forgive us of our sins. And so, yeah, the church is full of hypocrites. There's hypocrisy in every one of us. The point is I take that to Jesus and I ask him for forgiveness and I ask him to move and work in my heart and I ask the Holy Spirit to keep working on my stuff. That's called progressive sanctification. He didn't save you just so you can stay where you are. Another pastor I love says it this way. It's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. And see, that's what we're about. It's like, no, anybody is welcome. I don't care what junk you've got in your life. You're welcome in the community of faith. We want you here. But we expect that the Holy Spirit's going to move on your heart, and you're not going to stay the same year after year after year. He's going to move you closer. He's going to conform you to the image of Christ. That's one of the, the primary things that the Holy Spirit does when he works in our, in our hearts is he conforms us to the image of Christ. He moves us to be more like Jesus. And part of that 
is rooting out this hypocrisy thing, which a lot of judgmentalism comes from, right? And see, part of the problem is when I'm focused on, on your stuff, I can ignore my own stuff, can't I? It's really easy when I'm focused and all getting upset about your stuff. I can ignore my own stuff. Rabbis had a saying at the time that he who accuses another of a fault usually has that fault in himself. Have you noticed that some of the things that drive you the most crazy were things that you struggled with a year or two ago? And now, you, you know, it's like that just drives you crazy and you get on people for that? The things we hate most in, in others are often the things we see in ourselves. We should take note of that, right? All right, the second thing I want to introduce by reading the scripture from the Apostle Paul. And he says this, when you want to get to the heart, I think of what Jesus is talking about when he says, do not judge. When you really want to understand it, I think there's a deeper thing going on when you find yourself dripping, drifting into judgment. It's not just looking at somebody's behavior and going, that behavior is wrong. In fact, um, that's not what Jesus means when he says, don't judge. There's a deeper thing and a deeper place where the heart goes. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Paul says this, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. You see, for ancient people, the heart was viewed as the center of the hidden emotional, intellectual, moral activity. See, we, we, they didn't have the concept of, you know, the brain controlling all that. It, it was all bound up in the heart. And Jesus, that's why Jesus says, hey, it's out of the heart that flows all these things, right? Sexual immorality, slander, gossip, greed. All these things come out of the heart. And so I think when Jesus uses this word judge, there's a deeper thing going on here than just a surface level thing. Really, what you find when you find really people who are really going into judgment against other people, they're really trying to take on the role of what only God can play. See, judging heart motives is a role that only God can play. Exposing the motives of the heart is something only God knows, right? And so the second key to living, to, to living out what Jesus means when he says, do not judge, is this, that only God sees the heart. Don't try to do job, God's job. Only God sees the heart. Don't try to do God's job. See, Jesus, in another passage, he says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And see, we do this all the time with people. We, we see an action or a behavior, or we see the way somebody responded to something, and we go from there to making character assessments about them. If you've ever found yourself saying the phrase, and usually it's joking, oh, you're going to hell for that. Normally you're saying it joking as somebody does something or says something, right? But essentially at the heart of that idea is the thought that you, somehow you can do God's job. That's something only God knows, right? That's something only God is in control of. You don't know where somebody else stands with God. You don't know their life. You don't know the background. You don't know the history. And the further away you get from the situation, the less you know, right? 
And so while you can look at a specific behavior and obviously recognize something is wrong, doesn't line up with Scripture, behavior is sinful, you can't go from that point to actually judging somebody's heart and judging their motives. And see, this is what happens so often is you actually belittle people, you, you put them down and think you know the story. Stephen Covey, in his uh, classic bestseller, The Seven Hi- Habits of Highly Effective People, he tells the story of getting on the subway train. And as he's on the subway train, um, this, this guy and his two sons get on the train and he sits down, the man sits down and just kind of closes his eyes and looks like he's just sort of oblivious to everything. His kids are just going nuts, right? There's this peaceful scene. Everybody's got their papers and, and they're just hanging out enjoying the quiet. And all of a sudden there's these two kids going crazy. Now I understand this scene because <laughs> I have children, right? And, and there was a point in my life I remember... Um, where I would walk through the supermarket before I had children and I'd see a kid throwing a fit and I'd be like, well, what a lousy parent, you know? Why can't they control their, par- their kids? And then I had kids and I realized why, right? <laughs> they're little creatures, they're little people. They have free wills. And then I took one of my kids on a, uh, like a seven-hour plane ride when he was 18 months old and he just kept kicking the seat in front of him. And I'm like, stop, stop, right? And you, the only way I could get him to stop was to physically hold his feet. I threatened him, but how much can you really threaten an 18-month-old, right? So I threatened him, but it didn't work. So I'd have to hold his feet. And then he starts screaming. And eventually, it's just like you apologize to the person. I'm so sorry, you know, take your pick. Screaming or little feet on the back of your seat. I, I, I can't help it, right? But, but obviously... Um, you know, the judging was bouncing back on me at that point. But this guy, Stephen Covey, tells the example of this guy sitting down in the subway train car, and, his, and the kids are just going nuts. They're bouncing off anything, grab somebody's newspaper. I mean, they're out of control, right? And you all, if you've had kids, you, you understand what that feels like watching that happen, especially when it's disturbing your peace. And so Stephen Covey is like, he's just sort of putting up with it, putting up with it. Finally, he thinks, I'm going to be the big person here and and help everybody else out. And so he says this, so finally, with what I felt was an unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him, the man who was just sort of down, he he had his eyes closed, he's oblivious to what's going on, just tuned out. Says, I turned to him and said, sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you could control them a little bit more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think. I guess they don't know either. See, and all of a sudden, the whole situation changes, doesn't it? And see, the truth is you never know the story behind the story. And so before moving to judgment, you better make sure you have all the facts, right? Or even a better idea, don't move to judgment because you never have all the facts. You never have all the facts. Third thing is this, know when to keep your mouth shut. And in an age of social media, I think this is particularly important. Couple, couple things on these. The first thing is, if it's not clear in, 
in Scripture, don't hold others to the standard. Um, Christians do the weirdest things. We expect people to live by a bunch of stuff that isn't even made clear in Scripture. Now, our church, we do our best not to have this kind of culture. But some of you grew up in a church where, you know, there are a bunch of things you couldn't do because good Christians didn't do these things. And you're like, well, where is that? Right? Oh, you could go to a rated R movie, but only if Mel Gibson made it. So <laughs> so that's one, one way this, this works out. The second is um, if you're far removed from a situation you, you likely don't know the facts like we just talked about. And see, so many times judgmentalism, the way it shows itself in your life is gossip and slander. That, that you find yourself speaking out about another person. You don't have all the facts. You don't know what's going on. But you've already judged them in your heart. And because of that, you want to tell the, the five people closest to you why they're all about their faults, right? You know, in most of the big sin lists in the, in the scriptures, because here's the thing, if you read the New Testament, um, the Apostle Paul wrote a bunch of these. There's a bunch of big sin lists, right? And there's the ones that get shouted out about in the, in the news all the time that people like to argue about. But there's also, right, right in those same lists is gossip and slander. The same ones. The New Testament doesn't look kindly at those things. And the third thing is just understanding that sometimes maintaining the opportunity to speak into the lives of the people around you is much, much more important than being right. Much more important. Do you know that God really doesn't need you to stick up for him? He can do a pretty good job of that by himself. I'm not saying don't stand up for the truth and all that. That's important. But what I'm saying is there's times with your coworkers, there's times on social media plenty of times, where you would be much better off just holding your tongue, pausing before you hit comment, right? And recognizing that this person that you're about ready to publicly rebuke is somebody who needs Jesus, and you have the opportunity to move them towards Jesus, and this is actually probably moving them away from Jesus, I think in the age of social media, this is so critical. I watch comment trails and things. It's just like, man. And that opportunity just to, ha- to maintain the right to speak into people's lives means so much more than always expressing your opinion on an issue. This is something I personally think about all the time as a, as a pastor. Because I would much rather maintain the right to speak into somebody's life who I know doesn't agree with me on a whole bunch of issues, right? Than always have to speak up and be loud and vocal about some issues. Again, I'm not saying you, you don't call sin sin or any of that thing. But I'm saying just knowing, having wisdom and discernment on when is the right time to speak and when you're better off keeping your mouth shut and maintaining your influence with that friend or that coworker or that family member of that relationship is, is a very vital thing. Number four, and this is so important. Don't expect non-Jesus followers to live like Jesus followers. You know, if you're here and you're just checking out God, church, and the Bible, we're so glad that you're here. And, uh, you know, major reason why we planted a church out here is so that you'd have a place to come and explore Jesus and find relationship and move into deeper relationship with him. 
But there's plenty of times you're going to hear me say things like, hey, um, you know, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is, you don't have to do this. I mean, it'll probably make your life better if you do. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what we're expected to do. And see, Paul talks about this very same thing in 1 Corinthians. And it's this situation where there's this, this church, um, there's some serious messed up situations. And the re- one of the great parts about reading the New Testament is when you hear all the back and forth cultural dialogue that we have today. Um, I, I love studying Roman history. And as I study the Roman Empire, I'm like, wow, I, we're, we're getting back there pretty quick. But we're not close. You think it's in some ways hard to be a Christian in today's culture? I mean, imagine living in a culture where, you know, a whole Colosseum got together and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people or 30 or 40,000 people screamed and cheered for brutal massacres. Yeah, that's what gladiator battles were, right? The New Testament is written to a bunch of believers who live in a culture that's far more decadent than ours is today. And here's what he writes in regard to this one situation that's going on in in a church in Corinth. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. He's like, no, no, okay, I don't think you understand me right. You want to maintain your influence with people because the goal of relationship, number one, is just to love people because that's what God calls us to do. But everyone in your life who's in your life is so that you can influence them towards Jesus. You can love them towards Jesus, right? And so he says, I'm not telling you don't associate with those folks. You misunderstood me. He says, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother, or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slander, a drunkard, or swindler. Don't even eat with such people because that was a real intimate thing. So he's saying, okay, there's a difference between the way you treat people who, who aren't, don't claim to follow Jesus and the way you treat people who do. There's a different standard, you see. And part of the community and the point of the church community is that we spur each other on towards love and good deeds. Like he says in Hebrews, we spur each other on. Iron sharpens iron. We encourage each other to listen to the Holy Spirit. A phrase you almost never hear anymore is church discipline, right? The whole point of that was to draw people back to Jesus. The goal is always restoration. Paul says aim for restoration in everything. It's to encourage people. He says... What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Don't go judging a bunch of people that haven't signed up for what you signed up for. See, see, there's an expectation that when you follow Jesus, you give your life to him. When you say, Jesus, you're my Lord, that means you're submitting your life to him. See, our culture is all about, um, this whole conversation is all about me, 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 you be, you, 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 as much as you can be. And the message of Scripture The message of Jesus is you lay down your rights. You take up your cross and follow me. That's a hard message. But he says, when it comes to people that haven't signed up, what business is mine to judge them? I'm not going to judge them. Why would I expect somebody who's not a follower of Jesus to act like a follower of Jesus? He says, God will judge those outside. 
Leave that up to God. There will be a day, and this is why it's so vital. You tell your friends and family. You may be their, their primary link to Jesus. There will be a day they'll stand in front of their maker, right? And on that day, the judgment will be, did you place your faith and trust in Jesus? Did you turn? Did you give your life to him? And the fifth thing is this. Always be motivated by love. Always be motivated by love. Anytime you find yourself moving towards judgment, this is a great question to ask. Am I being motivated by love in this situation? Paul says another time, those who have really loved their neighbor as themselves have fulfilled the whole law. That, the, that, that when you follow what the Holy Spirit is leading and prompting you to in your life, it results in living a life of love for others. So when you find yourself drifting into judgment, good question to ask yourself, is that mind being motivated by love in this situation? And if the answer is no, you need to get back in step with the Holy Spirit. You need to say, I need to live controlled by you because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The things that naturally come out of your life when you're living your life by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, for the love, for Christ's love compels us. It compels us. We have to do what we have to do because of Christ's love. The reason I tell people about Jesus is because I really get Christ's love for me and his love for others, and I want them to know him with all my heart. His love compels us. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though through God we were making his appeal, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, the primary motivator in in our life is the love of Christ. The fact that you've been forgiven so much. The fact that you've been adopted as as a son or a daughter in God's family. You've been welcomed in. Because of that, you speak the truth, but you always speak the truth in love, right? With wisdom and discernment. So that you're always moving people closer to Jesus and not pushing them further away. That you're always, with fellow believers, the goal is always to restore into relationship, to move us closer into relationship with Jesus. Love is why we don't just tell everybody they're okay. Ah, what Anything goes, right? Because that's not real love. Any parent that tells that to their kid, that's not real love, is it? That's setting them up for a life of heartache when they hit the hard, cold reality of life. It's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to stay that way. You see, the gospel always includes a call towards repentance, towards turning and following Jesus. But anytime you find yourself with judgment rising up in your heart, you need to ask yourself, am I being motivated by love? Is love motivating me in this situation? So would you stand? 
You know, oftentimes, sometimes we do a song when we close, and other times we just close in prayer, but we give you something real emotional to chew on. I know today is more informational, but I know for each one of us, this judgment thing that creeps up in our heart is a regular, that's a regular occurrence, isn't it? And so what I really want you to do is just take this home and wrestle with this and ask yourself, when you find that coming up, am I being motivated by love? Am I being motivated by love? And then just like Paul said in the scripture, Christ's love compels us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If there's anyone in the room here today that you have not turned your life over to Jesus, put your faith and trust in him, we want to give you the opportunity to do this as we close. And so let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. For anyone in the room that you feel it's, it's Christ's love, the fact that he offers you eternal life and forgiveness, that's what draws you. And if you feel him drawing you here this morning, I just want to invite you to pray a simple prayer like this after me. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the son of God, that you died and rose again. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I want to live my life for you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Welcome me into your family. And Lord, for all my other friends here today, I just ask that you would... Um, you would help them remember this, that, that as they wrestle with all the, the loud dialogue in our culture back and forth, that they would have an accurate view of what you meant when you said, don't judge. But anytime they feel that judgmental spirit rising up in their heart, that they would just stop and, and ask, is this being motivated by love? And when the answer is no, would they get back on track with you, Holy Spirit? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.